I have begun to plant thee, and will labor to make thee full of growing. Noble Banquo, that hast no less deserved, nor must be known no less to have done so. Let me enfold thee and hold thee to my heart. There if I grow, the harvest is your own. This is Plausibly Live. Yesterday on the Bill Mick Live show, Dave Does History, we started talking about the Astor Place riots in 1849 and the impact that the love of Shakespeare had on America, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, and ultimately to the events of May 10th, 1849, the Astor Place riots. If you missed it, it's on the podcast. Um, it's an interesting discussion. It's an interesting event. But after the show, I started thinking about some things. And in conjunction with a, an article from the New York Times, my gears started grinding a little bit. And I started thinking about some things. And it started making me wonder about something we talked about on the show, which is the fact that particularly in the 19th century, the first half of the 19th century. Sorry, my stomach is still really bothering me today. Um, Every time I say I'm getting better, something goes wrong. But at any rate, in the first half of the 19th century, the love of Shakespeare in this country was, was, was amazing. Now, I think there's some reasons for that, but something happened. Something happened... I think, around the turn of the 20th century. And Shakespeare and classical educations kind of went out the window. Now, uh, there's something there that may have changed, and I, I think it's our entertainment choices, but we'll get into some of that here in just a moment. The New York Times article was about the fact that teaching of history, and we've talked about this before, American Heritage had the article some years ago about how uh, teaching of history at the collegiate level, nobody's majoring in history anymore, and history is history dying. This article in the New York Times last week, which I have linked up in the show notes below, uh, is more about history and the teaching of history at the elementary level and the primary school levels, and how history is being not taught, or how, how history is not being taught in uh, in the elementary levels. And, of course, it's the New York Times, so they have to blame somebody for this. Uh, you will not be surprised to learn that they blame George W. Bush for this and the Republicans in Congress because President Obama tried to fix it, couldn't because Republicans blocked him. Be that as it may, uh, if you choose to believe that, then so be it. But the, the idea here that history isn't being taught to elementary school students was intriguing to me, and they actually had a, a five-question quiz, which, of course, I aced, but um, it was, uh, it's a depressing article. It really is. When you think about the teaching of history, you have to ask yourself the question, why do we teach history? Why, why do we learn it? And I, I hate I hate the answer, but it's the answer everybody goes to, the Satyana quote about how if you don't learn from history, you'll be doomed to repeat it. That's not why we teach history. We teach history to inculcate 
upcoming generations, new generations, with the beliefs, the principles, the values, and the worldviews which we have developed as a culture and a society. We want to pass those things on. And how we do that is by teaching the past, the lessons that we have learned do those things. Uh, I read an interesting quote about traditions the other day and about, you know, the undoing of traditions. Traditions are lessons learned. And when you follow the traditions, you don't have to relearn the lessons. And if you don't follow the traditions, then you're going to have to relearn the lessons of the mistakes that were made before. In the same way, history teaches those things to each, uh, each generation as it comes up. The beliefs of a society, the principles, the values, the worldviews, and even to some degree, the fears of a given society. We use various methodologies for this. Um, one of the most basic is mythology. We use mythology to teach those things, particularly worldviews and fears. Um, and not all myths, by the way, are, you know, we, we, we've assigned the meaning of the word myth to mean something that is not true. That is not what mythology means. Uh, mythology is not necessarily untrue. It is things that are ba- legends, folk tales, those sorts of things that can, that can be based in history, based in reality, but are imbued with this idea of teaching beliefs, principles, values, and worldviews, and even to a degree, fears. We use oral history. We tell these stories. I'm surprised even at myself because I used to love to listen to my grandparents tell me stories. One of my least favorite stories, I guess, my my grandparents were adults during the Depression and got married during the Depression. And Grandpa was, in his words, shanghaied into the military and yada, yada. My grandfather was a conscientious objector, so... um, it's not the story for the day, but he, he tells me the story about what people were like during the Depression. And, and this, you know, I grew up in the in the 60s, 70s, and in the 80s, I was a young adult. Remember the Cabbage Patch dolls and the way people would fight over Cabbage Patch dolls at the stores? Well, he was telling me that the same thing sort of happened uh, back during the Depression. He read one day that there was uh, a sale on metal wash tubs, and they needed a metal wash tub, and so he went down there, and of course there were dozens of these things, and they were all lock-wired together. He was the only guy there, and so he was unwiring them and handing these things to the women who were there to buy them, and he had to fight for the last one, because if he'd have come home without one, I guess my grandmother would have not been happy. But it was, he had to fight. I mean, I'd physically fight people to keep this thing, and so there was this oral history that related to what I understood human behavior to be uh, later on with, with Cabbage Patch dolls and other things. This oral history is important because this is how human societies have passed on that history, those beliefs, those principles, those values, those worldviews and fears throughout all time. But we also have written history, which, you know, if you were to see my bookshelf, you'd know uh, I love written history. I my bookshelf and my my Kindle are full of that. All of these methods, however, suffer from the same issues, and that, of course, is editorial choices that are made in presenting that history, whether it's oral or written, or even in mythology. Uh, the interesting thing, I'm, I'm actually taking a course in mythology right now, classical mythology, 
And one of the things that the instructor talked about was the fact that the written myth that we have now isn't necessarily the written, the, the myth that the people who wrote it down grew up with. Myths change over time. History changes somewhat over time. The editorial choices that are made. I'll give you a great example of this. You know, we argue all the time about uh, the American Civil War. And if you were to go and look at the number of books written about the American Civil War from the Confederate side versus the Union side, you will see that there is a preponderance of the Confederate side. They lost. So why did they write so many books? What about monuments? Did you know that at one point before statues began to be torn down and the likes of that, something like four and a half times as many monuments to the Confederacy as there were to the Union? The winning side? It seems strange, but this is that editorial choice that I'm talking about that's being made. You have editorial choice problems. You have time and distance from events uh, when you're trying to tell stories. You're trying to retell them, whether written or oral. Sometimes distance matters. There's a very, uh, in my view, famous event that happened to me while I was on the submarine. And when I was asking people about it at the reunion a couple of years ago, many people didn't remember it that way. They didn't remember it at all. Time and distance from events changes perspective of those things. But in the end, the purpose is the same, to inculcate the new generations with the beliefs, principles, values, worldviews, and even fears of a given society. Now, when we teach these things, there was a time when we had what was known as a classical education. Particularly in the 18th, 19th centuries, we had this classical education. We've talked about this before. This is what the founders and the framers knew as history. These were the things that they had learned, these, these values that they had been taught and Im embedded with throughout their time was based on this classical education. Moreover, it was pretty much every American's knowledge at that point. Even folks who couldn't afford to go to school were given that same kind of education. This classical education has been defined as follows uh, by Julie Brennan. The heart of an education in the 18th century, and by extension the 19th century, was based on the classics. They would learn reading, writing, mathematics, Greek, and Latin. Many would also learn logic, history, and geography. Latin and Greek were crucial in preparing a young man for university, but we must also remember that this was a time when teachings of the ancients, Cicero, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth, were extremely influential in all aspects of intellectual life, from philosophy to mathematics to science and even to medicine. It would have been very difficult for a boy to take his place in the middle or upper classes adult world without an understanding of the classical teachings and the literature. That was the classical education, but there was also a cultural education, which included primarily literature. Yes, I know the world today is different. Books are important, literature is important, but not as it was in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Back then it was king, literature was king, because there was no TV, there was no radio, there were no films. There were books, newspapers, and talking. That was pretty much it for entertainment. I mean, you had, you had plays and the likes of that, but those plays were all written down in books. And of all of that literature, Shakespeare in America during that time frame was king. 
He was available. He was free. And pretty much every American knew their Shakespeare. They may not know every line of of Shakespeare. They might not have known, you know, every every nuance of the play, but they, they understood what they were. They understood what was happening and why this was important. But since the end of the 19th century, and I would actually put it more towards the middle of the 20th century, Shakespeare has kind of died out in America. There's still Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong. It's still out there. In fact, uh, I watched Macbeth the other day with, with Patrick Stewart. It was fantastic. But it was not well received around the world. Kenneth Branagh, one of my favorite actors, Shakespearean actor. Um, but in the early part of the 20th century, when films began to be made, uh, many of those films were Shakespearean films. I have uh, Marlon Brando and Julius Caesar, uh, which is weird. I don't know why they, they bill him as the lead actor, but he doesn't even play Julius Caesar. So anyway, he plays Mark Antony, not that you care. The early days of film featured a lot of Shakespeare, but today's films don't, and today's history films are questionable, I guess, is is the best way to put it. I think of the film 300, which deals with the Battle of Thermopylae, and the pure fantasy that most people have now associated with this. Shakespeare... However, as I said, since about the middle of the 20th century, it's kind of died out. It's kind of, the word I used yesterday was passe. You can't, you can't sit down at the coffee shop anymore and have a reasonable conversation with just some stranger you met about, you know, which of Shakespeare's tragedies is the best one. I mean, you, nobody's going to even know what you're talking about, Titus Andronicus. How many of you even knew that Titus Andronicus was a tragedy written by Shakespeare. One of the most violent plays in history. It's, it's, but, it, but lessons are there. The question that I end up asking, because of this, that I started thinking about after talking with Bill yesterday about the, the riots, the, the, the Astor Place riots, based on this Shakespearean play, Macbeth, and the rivalry between England and the United States, question I started asking myself, what if it's more than just history that is not being taught? And I base that on the idea that Shakespeare isn't necessarily being taught anymore. I, went, I graduated from high school in 1981, and it literally was not until my junior year that I studied any Shakespeare at all. But what if it's more than just history? What if it's Shakespeare? What if it's art? Well, my son, who is a seventh grader, has learned some art, most of it more modern than classical. Oddly enough, my son likes Henri Matisse. He, he did a whole thing in, in second grade on Matisse and painting. He's had a series of lessons on free speech. But none of these lessons, because I've monitored them, have have relied on a classical understanding of these things, and, and none of them have included Shakespeare at all. Now, again, he's a seventh grader. Maybe they don't teach it yet. Maybe they look at Shakespeare with its language issues, because, you know, it, again, Shakespeare is difficult for the modern ear to understand. 
maybe they don't do it until high school. I don't know. We didn't. Well, I knew who Shakespeare was, but, but beyond that, I don't know. When you look at Shakespeare and you understand what he was doing, he was retelling stories from the past. He was telling an oral history, written oral history of the past, based in many cases on the, the ancient histories and retelling them in English and, and, and retelling those stories. What if the problem is in, in losing Shakespeare that we've forgotten the myths and the legends and the stories and the oral history, the lessons of history? We no longer read or even watch or even listen to those stories that Shakespeare retold. How many of our forefathers, our grandparents, maybe even our parents, depending on how old we are, knew the story of Antony and Cleopatra, not from the 1963 film, but from Shakespeare's version of it? We don't reread these stories. We don't even watch the films anymore that were made. And so we don't necessarily get inculcated with those values and principles and ideals and societal values and even worldviews and fears. Let me take this into another area that maybe maybe is a little controversial. I don't know. It's not just Shakespeare we don't reread. It's not just Shakespeare we don't study. It's biblical stuff, too, and I don't really care if you're you know, Christian or Jewish, doesn't really matter. How many times do we retell those stories? Remember that these stories, again, it's an oral history that's been written down, that's been passed down to us for the purpose of inculcating us with those values, those, those same values before, beliefs, principles, worldviews, even to a degree, things that we should fear. But if we don't retell those stories, if we don't reread those stories, if we're not passing them on, if they have become passé, if they have become like Shakespeare and we just ignore them, are we passing on that history? Are we passing on those ideals? There's a line in Macbeth, King Duncan says it, if you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not. And it reminded me a little bit this morning of one of my favorite parables which is an old Chinese parable, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Second best time to plant a tree is today. History, as a social science, as a social study, is the seeds of time. It is those seeds of time that Duncan is talking about. And we can plant it, we don't know what's going to grow. We can't look and say which grain will grow and which will not. Which, which child will listen? Which child will learn? Will they be inculcated with these values? I got to stop saying that word. I love the word inculcated. It's a great word, but I got to stop saying it. But I do know this. Just like a tree, if we don't plant it, nothing will grow. We may have failed to plant the tree 20 years ago. But we can still plant it today. And that's maybe the lesson that we should take, is that just because we haven't done it as good as we should have done it, or as much as we should have done it, or even have done it, we can still start today. And some grain, some trees, will grow and bear fruit. 